0: So go ahead, turn with me to Matthew chapter 22. We're going to be in verses 34 through 40 this morning. I'll go ahead and tell you. I've already mentioned One Life Weekend. You can also, when you hear me say that, you can also hear Jeremy didn't get enough sleep. All right? So if I start mumbling like this because I'm tired, feel free, any one of you or all of you, just right away, just shout at me, wake up. All right? Like... You have been given permission. Go for it. All right. So, being a parent can be a real delight, right? Those of you who are parents, you understand this. Being a parent can be a, a real delight. And yet, there are, uh, there are moments that are less than delightful. You know, there is, is one part of parenting where these two things, you know, can, can come together, and that is asking your child really to do anything. The age of my boys, I think, like asking them to clean up their toys. And now, when I say that, you don't have to be a parent to understand what I'm talking about here. Because we have all been under parental authority, and so we know what it's like to be told, Hey you, go and do this. And sometimes when that happens, like this goes great. You say, Hey kid, it's almost time for dinner. Will you, go, will you go pick up your toys and, and let's get them put away and let's all come to the table because it's time for dinner. Will you, will you do that? And your kids are just like, yeah, I'll do that. Yeah, okay. And they just go and they do it and they're happy and it's great and it's, and it's a good time. And you're like, this is it. Someone take a picture. I want this painted in oil because this is the pinnacle to happily doing what I asked. It doesn't get any better. And then there are other times. Oh, boy. You're not sure, you know, if you ask them to please go clean up their Legos or if you ask them to saw off their leg. There is wailing. There's gnashing of teeth. There's probably some tears. There's arguing. There's talking back. And there's grumbling. And eventually, eventually, they go and they do what you've asked But it ain't with joy. It ain't with delight. Ain't nobody delighting in what's going on at that point. They're doing it because they know that they have to, right? Not because they actually want to. In our passage this morning, what we have is the third in a series of challenges by the Jewish authorities to Jesus. Remember, this comes on the heels of Jesus' parables, parables condemning them. You could even go back a little further. You have Jesus running the New York Stock Exchange right out of the temple, off the temple grounds. You have his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. All of that's kind of leading into where we're, we're at. And so their goal in the challenges that they're issuing uh, to Jesus here is so that they can get the crowds to turn against him. They're basically trying to weaponize Jesus's own words against him, so that the crowds will be like, bump this fool, I am not listening to him anymore. So they begin to try to catch him in a trap. So the first that we saw to take a, take a swing at him were the disciples of the Pharisees, along with the Herodians. And now remember, these aren't two groups that are normally going to get along. These are not allies, but here they come together because they have a common goal. That is a desire to bring down Jesus. So, they ask him about paying taxes. Remember, they were trying to get him to reveal himself as either uh, a rebel or as pro-Rome. And so, either he's going to be killed as a rebel, or the crowds are going to turn against him because he has aligned himself with Rome. But instead, he turns the tables on them. His response that we saw, it reveals that life in God's kingdom isn't divided between the sacred and the secular. Every part of life lines up, and it aims at bringing glory to God. So his wisdom here leaves his challengers astonished as they walk away whooped. Now next, we have the Sadducees. They're the next to take a swing at him. And their angle, we saw last week, was mockery. They wanted to prove that Jesus was nothing more than an uneducated, peasant carpenter. So they make fun of him by asking him this uh, scenario about a woman marrying seven brothers. She's married to one, he dies. Then she marries another, he dies. And so on until everybody is dead. Then they ask, all right, so in the resurrection... Who's she going to be married to, Jesus? But Jesus turns the table on them too. You know, when we talked about the Sadducees, remember, we saw that they only believed that the first five books of the Bible, the Torah, these books of the Bible are legitimate. They then reject the resurrection because they didn't think that the resurrection of the dead was taught explicitly in those books of the Bible, that it it never came up. Therefore, any assertion that there would be a resurrection is untrue. But Jesus shows that they didn't actually know what they claimed to believe by quoting to them from Exodus. There we saw that God keeps his covenant promises to his people. Not even death can prevent this. He is the God of his people for all of eternity. And so this now leaves the crowd marveling at him and at his teaching. What was meant to discredit him is having the opposite effect. And so what we've seen in each of these challenges is that Jesus hits his opponents with something that they weren't expecting, and that's going to happen in our passage this morning as well. So Matthew chapter 22, picking up in verse 34, it says this, But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, They gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the greatest command, the great commandment in the law? And he, Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Do you pray with me? Father, thank you for giving us your word so that we can know what is true. Thank you for the Holy Spirit who teaches us the truth, who convicts us of sin, who gives us new desires and affections to worship you. Lord, we come to you this morning acknowledging that you alone are worthy of worship. So, Lord, we ask that you would increase our desires to live for your glory through your word this morning. Grow us, mature us into the likeness of Christ. And we pray these things to you in his name. Amen. So, like last week, we want to divide this into just two sections. We want to talk about the question or the challenge and then Jesus' Response. So we see that the the silencing of the Sadducees finally brings the Pharisees themselves out to confront Jesus. Remember, previously they had only sent the interns, and the interns failed. Their political enemies, the Herodians, failed. Their theological opponents, the Sadducees, failed. Everybody's a failure. So now they're stepping up to take a swing of their own at Jesus... And now, w- when I read this, I can help but feeling that it, it kind of has this feel of, like, a movie villain who's finally revealing themselves. You know, no one has been able to defeat the hero, so now the big bad guy has to get their hands dirty. I'm a big fan of the Marvel movies, so if you are, it makes me think of, like, at the end of Age of Ultron, you know, you get that mid credit scene where Thanos steps out, and he's got the Infinity Gauntlet, and he's like, fine, I'll do it myself, and puts his hand in, and you as the audience are like, ah, here he comes. This, it kind of has like that, that feel for me here. The, the big bad who's behind everything is now stepping out to get their hands dirty. So Matthew says in verse 34 that the Pharisees, they gathered together before the lawyer asked this question. And now we may look at that and go, oh, well, okay, yeah, that kind of makes sense. Like they're they're going to get together and kind of like compare notes and like see how are we going to go about this. But I, th- I think that there's, there's more than that that's going on here. We need to remember the block of text that we're in, Matthew 21 through 23. It, it focuses on the clash between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the Jews. Now, all through Matthew, hostility has been simmering uh, between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the Jew, between Jesus and the religious authorities. And this tension, this hostility that's just been boiling and, and simmering under the, uh, under the surface, it's finally boiling over. And so when Matthew uses the words here, saying that the Pharisees gathered together, he's pointing at this. You might remember back to the summer as we were going through the Psalms when we read Psalm 2. See, Matthew, I think, is echoing that right here. In Psalm 2, verse 2, we read about the pagan kings and rulers taking counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. So Matthew's choice, his word choice here, is no accident. Matthew wants us to see just how hostile this interaction was. It also drives home the reality that these leaders weren't really interested in the worship of God. They wanted power, and they wanted Jesus out of the way so that they could keep it. In addition to that, We see that they were liars. They pretended to show Jesus respect by identifying him as a teacher. We've seen this in each of these challenges. They come to him and say, teacher, acting as if there's respect and there's admiration, and we just want to ask a question. But based on how they question him here, it seems that this, this probably came with a sneer. There's malice behind the question You think you're a teacher? Let's see what you think about our law. So this lawyer steps forward from the Pharisees, and he asks Jesus, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And now there are two things about that I think we want to understand. One, who is this guy, and what is he asking? What is the trap that he's trying to lay? So this lawyer, this is a guy who would have been well-versed in the Scriptures. He would have known his stuff backwards and forwards and probably backwards again. He's going to be a a respected theologian. Everyone would have known that when this guy steps out and asks this question, they would have been like, oh boy, he knows the law. He knows our scriptures backwards and forwards. He knows it very, very well. But we know that the scriptures came to bear on every part of Jewish life, including civil laws dictating how they would live and act amongst one another. So he's also an expert in how the Scriptures, how the law, came to apply to everyday life. He knows the Word, he knows what the Word means, and he knows how it's supposed to be applied to their lives. And so his question then is meant to test Jesus to find out what Jesus himself knows or believes about the law. See, the Pharisees had tested him in a, in a very similar way. You might remember back in Matthew 19. There, though, their question was very specific. They asked him about divorce. Here the test is much broader. Which of the hundreds of commands is the most important? Now, this was a common question that was debated by different rabbis. They had identified 613 different commands in the law they then separated these out by labeling them as either light or heavy. And, and in doing that, we don't want to misunderstand, their, their point wasn't to identify ones that were so small, so insignificant, that they could just be like, I'm just going to put this over here and pretend it doesn't exist, I'm just going to ignore it. No, they conceptually understood that all of the commands were to be treated seriously because they were all from God. They were all God's law, therefore they were all serious, and yet they divided them into light and weighty, meaning that they were just arguing that some carried a greater importance than others. For example, not killing someone, not committing murder, more important than not boiling a baby goat in its mother's milk. So both things prescribed in the law, Both important, because it is God's law, and yet one heavier, one lighter. So then, what they're trying to do is narrow the law down to a commandment that could summarize for them the whole of the Mosaic Law. So it seems like the motivations then, if we're just taking it on face value, the motivations behind this debate are good, right? They're just asking the question, what will best help me understand God's law? But the Pharisees here, they're not concerned with Jesus settling an inter debate for them. They don't, they don't care about his opinion. is not phoning a friend. The goal is obviously get Jesus trapped in controversy. What they want to do is they want to get him stuck debating whataboutism, right? If Jesus says to them, okay, the great command is don't murder, they're going to then say, what about adultery? Is that not important, Jesus? If Jesus says, don't commit adultery, they're going to say, well, what about honoring the Sabbath? Is that not important enough to you? If Jesus answers the, way, the question the way that the lawyer expects... It's going to make someone angry. See, the lawyer thinks he's going to get Jesus on the wrong side of somebody, probably several someones, and that will then put Jesus in a no-win situation. Because no matter what he says, no matter which commandment he picks out, someone's going to disagree. And the crowds, in turn, might have a problem. But then I don't think Matthew has set us up to see this as their only aim. See, Matthew has repeatedly shown us that Jesus' teaching about the moral ethic of the kingdom of God goes beyond that what the Pharisees understood or taught. You may remember back in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, uh, I think it's verse 20, he tells his disciples that if their righteousness did not exceed that of the Pharisees, They would not enter the kingdom of heaven. And remember, that's before he walked them through the moral norms of the kingdom. Remember, that's where he says, You have heard it said, but I say to you. They had been taught not to murder, but Jesus teaches that those who were angry with their brother was just as guilty as the murderer. He did this with adultery and lust, with divorce and sexual immorality, with oaths, keeping with who is your neighbor and how do you treat your enemy. He did all of that there in Matthew chapter 5. And they've also had confrontations all along the way around keeping the Sabbath, around fasting, about dietary laws. So it seems like another angle that the lawyer is taking in this question is he's trying to draw out what Jesus really thinks about the law. What he's trying to get Jesus to do is say something critical about the Mosaic Law to get Jesus to say something that makes it look like that Jesus doesn't really care about the Mosaic Law. that He's not really concerned about it. That, that's, that's, that's not what I'm about. In, in both cases, it would allow the Pharisees to spin Jesus' response and paint him in opposition to the law. Whatever he says will give them an opportunity to make him look like a fool, or worse. They want the crowd, simply put, to lose faith in him, and wonder, can we listen to this guy? And then think about it. Who does that leave in the position to kind of swoop back in and look at the crowds and say, we teach you how to honor God. Trust us. Listen to us. Let's leave this loser. He's still figuring it all out. He doesn't know. The Pharisees. But they're forgetting a critical part of keeping the law. That's motivations, the motivations of the heart. And so that leads us to Jesus' response. Jesus, as he has not done, doesn't take the bait. First he says to them, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. So he's quoting here from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5. You probably remember this is part of the Shema. This is from Moses' further teaching on the law as the people prepared to enter the land. You take a step back and you remember they're on Sinai, they get the Ten Commandments, and then they sin egregiously, they refuse to go into the land, they doubt the goodness and providence of God to give them the land, to overthrow the people in the land, and so the Lord says, lap around the desert, we're going to kill off this generation, this faithless generation, and so for 40 years they wander, killing off that generation. And so now Moses here in Deuteronomy 6, he is preparing this next generation to enter into the land. And now this command that he gives in Deuteronomy 6, 5, flows out of the acknowledgement that God alone is God, that there is no other. In Deuteronomy 6.4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. And so in 6.5, it's recognition of God's uniqueness that meant submitting to his law, to submitting to his rule over them. But then in saying that you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, Is qualifying how it is that the nation of Israel, how God's people would be obedient to him. And that was through undivided devotion. Because of who God is and who he had revealed himself to be to the people, they were to love him. And it's this love that was to produce obedience to all that he commanded. And so, excuse me. (coughs) So, in Jesus quoting this, He's quoting something that would have been very well known to the Pharisees. In fact, uh, pious Jews recited this verse daily. You even had Jewish men who wore little boxes on both their head and their arms called a phylactery. You'll see that come up in a couple of weeks in Matthew 23. These little boxes, they held verses of Scripture to aid them during their daily prayers. And you might have guessed it. This verse was one of the verses contained in those little boxes that they kept physically on their person as an aid for their prayers. So to say that they were familiar with it is really probably an understatement. They probably recited it in their sleep. It was ingrained in their minds. And so in citing this text, Jesus takes aim at a misguided way of thinking about obedience. He points to the heart. True law-keeping starts... With having the right motivations. Failure to start there makes any conversation about the importance of various laws useless. And so, in this, he points to the reality of the kingdom that the Pharisees were missing. Being a citizen in the kingdom of God wasn't just a matter of rigid obedience to his laws. Those in the kingdom obey the law of God because they love Him. This had come up repeatedly throughout Israel's history. Through the prophets, the Lord over and over told them He didn't just want their sacrifices. He wanted their hearts. He states this explicitly through the prophet Hosea. Hosea 6, verse 6 says, For I desire steadfast love, not sacrifice, the knowledge of God, rather than burnt offerings we see in psalm 37 verse 4 just reading the first half of it it says delight yourself in the lord this isn't a suggestion psalm 37 4 delight yourself in the lord not a suggestion not just a good idea something that you should maybe think about doing it's a command this is what humanity was made for It's what you were made for. You were created to worship God. You and I were created for His glory. This happens through obedience. That is the product of love for God, of satisfaction, of contentment in Him. It's more than just rigid, cold, sterile observance of His rules and commands. This doesn't mean that just anything that we do is worship, if it's done out of love. Let me explain. See, our our goal is not to just do what we think is the most loving thing in any given situation. This is evident when, when people, you see this maybe play itself out, when people treat the idea of confronting people in their sins as unloving, and I say, you know, well, the most loving thing to do here clearly is just to affirm them in the position that they're in. The thing that they say is going to make them the most happy, that's loving. And so if I'm going to do the most loving thing, if I'm going to be the loving person, I just need to affirm them in what makes them happy. They need to decide that for themselves, and I need to just, if I love them, I'll affirm them in that so that they can be happy because I want them to be happy. For example, the person who wants a divorce because their spouse is cold and unloving. The marriage has grown cold, affection, random acts of kindness, things like that are sparse. And so the person has grown unhappy, it's, it's miserable. We can, I think that would be miserable. And so they're thinking about divorce, they're unhappy. And so this misguided concept of love, the, the kind of concept of love that has been corrupted by sin, says affirm them in that. If that's what's going to make them the happiest, I mean, and yeah, that's a miserable situation. If they would be happier, then, then who am I to deny them that? How dare I deny them that? If I love them, I won't. But this is not the biblical concept of love. And it's not fitting for a citizen in Christ's kingdom. Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And so in this example, we know that, that Jesus explicitly had said, this, this example of divorce, we see that Jesus has explicitly said, what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate, referring to divorce. And we know that this is a very real scenario. I'm not trying to make light of it. You can look at that scenario and say that there's a lot of work that would need to be done there. But the point is that love for God produces desires to obey His Word, a love for His Word, a love for His commands, because we see it as life-giving, even when it's hard. But it starts with love for God. That's what drives Christian obedience. We need to understand love for God and law-keeping are two sides of the same coin. Think of it like a train on a, on a train track, and I'm borrowing from Lig Duncan here. The laws are the rails that direct our thoughts, our actions, and motives in the right direction. But love is the energy that moves us down the tracks, that gives us the desires even to be on those tracks. The point is, you cannot have God-honoring obedience without being motivated by love for him, And as Jesus says, this love, it's, it's from the whole person. He makes reference to heart, soul, and mind. These are not just references to individual parts of our lives. I love God here, I love God here. I love no, his, his point is that the greatest command is to be holy and completely devoted to God. He's defining his terms. What he means when he says, by, by having love for God. It's not just a warm, fuzzy feeling that I get toward God. It's not just butterflies in my stomach when that song hits the chorus or when I'm thinking about Him. It's no longer living fixated on myself and instead giving myself completely in service to Him. Why? Because He is God. The one true God and is worthy of all praise and all honor and all glory. And because he alone is worthy, I love him. This, Jesus says, is the greatest commandment. The one with primacy in the law. Failure to get this means failure to uphold any command whether we decide it's light or heavy. In splitting hairs over the significance of various law, the Jews had missed the point. Obedience to the law was the product of love for God. And yet, the very thing that he says is of foremost importance is something that we are incapable of on our own. As Paul says in Second Timothy 3, by nature, we are lovers of self and lovers of pleasure rather than God. You see, the, the corrupting effect of sin on love is that it's twisted it, it's distorted it, it's turned it in on itself. And in turning lo- our love in on itself under sin's power and influence, we love ourselves first and foremost and always. Love for God is... Is not something that comes natural to us. See, left to ourselves, we are hostile towards God. And just so we're clear, when I say that, I'm not just talking about militant atheism. Good deeds that are done because I want people to praise me, I'm not really worried about praise of God. That's hostility towards God. You are robbing him of the praise that he is due obeying his commands so that I feel feel better about myself, not because I'm really interested in the honor that God gets for my obedience, not doing it out of love for him. It's hostility, because again, robbing him of praise and glory. These are the motivations of a heart that is bent towards love of self, not love of God. And yet love of God is at the very essence of what it means to worship him. But here's the beauty of the gospel. Listen to 1 John 4.10. It says, In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Sent his Son to satisfy his wrath against our sins. His just and right wrath against our sins. Despite our refusal to give God the worship that he alone deserves, he has made his love known to us in the death and resurrection of Jesus. God has satisfied the divine wrath reserved for sinners by pouring it out on the Son. Christ took for his people what they deserve for our unwillingness to love and serve God. Therefore there is now no wrath left for those who turn from sins and come under the rule and reign of Christ. Confessing sin and repenting of them is then further this is further evidence of God's love for his people. Having poured his wrath out on Christ, he pours out his spirit on those who are his. It's the Spirit that causes the people of God to be born again. This new birth, being a new creation in Christ, then produces new affections and new desires within the heart of the Christian. Chief among those is love for God, for who He is, and for what He's done. So how do we come to love God? God produces this love in us through the death and resurrection of Jesus and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. How do we express this love for God? Through repentance and faith. Through obedience to His Word that is the product of our new affections and desires. It's not because I feel obligated to do it like I have to pay Him back for what He did on the cross. I I, I think that sometimes we think about the Gospel in this way, how we think about the Gospel and what it means for our lives. He died for me. So I guess I have to go out now and I have to uphold my end of the bargain. No. He died for us. And so we live for Him because we delight in Him. The new birth results in joy and delight in Christ so that now I want to, I have the desire to obey His commands. It leads us to devote ourselves to Him as the Spirit changes us from the inside out, making us into the image of Christ. That's good news. But this also requires that we stop and ask the question, what motivates me to do the things that I do? If true obedience to him is obedience that flows out out of love for him, I then have to evaluate everything I say, everything I do, and everything I think. What is motivating me? Is it love for God? And so I would ask you, and does that make you a little nervous? Because it does me. I See, I find it way too easy to get caught up in trying to pick the right wording and wanting to say things as clearly as possible without the first thought of preaching and teaching as worship, as an act of love for God. And honestly, that's terrifying. It could be that. It could be praying, reading the Bible. It, it's too easy to see means of grace good sanctifying works as nothing more than tasks that need to be done without thinking about why I'm actually doing them. And and I'm willing to bet I'm not alone in that. So here's another question I would ask you. Why are you here right now? Why did you get up this morning, maybe earlier than you want, put on clothes that, let's be real, aren't super comfortable, except for t-shirt Sunday, and come sit in a room That, again, just being honest, that we keep colder than any of you want it to be. Then you stand, and you sit, and you stand, and you sit, and you pray, and you listen to prayers, and you sing, and you listen to other people sing, and then you listen to a 45-minute sermon, maybe. Why do you get up early in the morning to pray? Why do you get up early in the morning to read the Bible? Better yet, why do you try to do what the Bible says? Why do you try to incorporate those things into your life? Is it because you feel like, I don't know, It's just what I'm supposed to do, isn't it? Is it because, you know, I feel guilty if I I don't, and I don't want to feel bad, so I do those things. Is it because you think that's how you get God to do what you want? I do this for him, he does this for me. We have to see in this text that doing the right things for the wrong reasons misses the mark. If your goal is to check a box so that you won't feel guilty, to check a box out of a sense of obligation, or because you want people to think well of you, you're missing it. That's moralism. It's not faith or love for God. The Apostle Paul warns us about this in 1 Corinthians 13. In verses 1 through 3, he says, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Biblical faith is love for God because of who He is and what He has done. And this changes me. It's putting away sin and doing what God commands because I delight in Him. But this raises a question. What do I do when I'm just not feeling it? Because we all know what that's like, too. When I pick up my Bible to read it, I go to pray, and my affections are cold. My heart's just not in it, or I'm on my way to the service, and I've got a million different things banging around in my head. Do I just put my head down and just plow right on through? Do I I stop, say, nope, going no further, put the Bible away, go do something else so don't pray, turn around and go back home, and wait till my affections are right before obeying what He has commanded? No. We pray. Remember, you did not first love God. He loved us first. We depend on His grace to cultivate and to grow love for Him within us. If you have been raised with Christ, He does this by placing His Spirit in you. He did this by placing His Spirit in you. We never stop depending on Him for our lives to be driven by love for Him. So Christian, pray. Confess your weak affections and ask Him for help. Ask Him to increase your love for Him that you would truly delight in Him. And trust Him to work in you For his glory, because that's why he made you, to glorify him. We read the first half of Psalm 37, 4 a few minutes ago. We need to read the rest. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. If my delight is in him, then I am going to desire the things that he desires. What he loves, I will love, and be growing in my love For them, that is righteousness. What he hates, I will hate, that is sin, and be growing in my hatred towards my sin and the effects of sin. If my delight is in him, then my prayers will be growing in conformity to his will. These are the kinds of desires that I can trust him to give to me. So, Christian, throw yourself on his mercy, and then give yourself to the task at hand. Read his word Pray with the church. Join in singing with the church. Participate in the sermon by taking notes, reading along, jotting down questions. Pray for aid. And then give yourself to the means of grace that God uses to produce love for himself in his people. Don't just wait to do this when you realize your affections are misaligned and the love is lacking. We're always putting to death what is worldly in us. So prayers for affections that align us with the standards and values of the kingdom should be a regular rhythm in our prayers. In fact, love for God based on who He is and what He has done for us in Christ, it's going to lead us to that. And fully confident in His grace and mercy to us, we go out and we put away sins, turn from our old sinful desires into His life-giving commands because He is our delight. You may say, Yeah, I do those things. It's still a struggle. I'm with you. I I get it. But press on in pleading for help. Remember, you don't outgrow your need for His mercy and grace to you. And so be encouraged that you recognize the struggle against lesser and weaker affections and desires. Because this too is evidence of His grace at work in you. So continue in repentance and trust him to grow love for Himself in you. See, what's concerning is when we don't really care that we're just going through the motions, when we just check our little boxes and think that we've done what is required of us. See, that's a dangerous place. And if you're there, repent of your love of self and give yourself to the worship of God. Throw yourself on His mercy. But Jesus doesn't just stop at one commandment. I promise I won't talk about this one as long as the other. He follows this by citing Leviticus 19:18. says, "In a second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself." There Moses taught the Israelites how God's covenant people would treat one another. Uh, love for neighbor was to motivate how they interacted with one another. From not harming their neighbors to not harvesting their fields all the way to the edges so that the, the poor could collect food from their fields. All of this was under the, the heading of, of love for neighbor. All of this was love for neighbor that was governing how they lived together. So loving one another as you would yourself, that requires a redirection of my interest. I and mean, we have no problem looking out for number one, right? I think we've established that. But what Jesus is describing here completely flips what is natural on its head. Rather than constantly pursuing that which is self-serving, I pursue what is others-serving. My aim in my interactions with others is to serve their best interest. So the idea of loving one's neighbor as yourself should be looked at in two different lights. Do not do anything That is not in your neighbor's best interest. Do things that are in your neighbor's best interest. Why? Because that's what you would do for yourself. But this doesn't mean begrudgingly doing for others what we would want done for ourselves. If I truly love someone, I'm not gonna be like my kid when they're complaining about the task that they've been given. Kicking Legos and cars all the way to the toy bucket. I'm not sullen and grumpy. It's my joy and it's my delight to see them happy. See my neighbor happy. So I I gladly give up my time and energy and resources because my joy isn't in chasing after my own interests. It's in giving myself for the good of others as I put to death my natural love of self. And so by connecting these two commands, Jesus makes a crucial point about what it means to love God. You cannot love God without loving your neighbor in this joy-filled, selfless, sacrificial way. The two go hand in hand. Would you love God? Then you must love your neighbor as yourself. Would you like to best love your neighbor then love God and have that love for him and love for his word shape your interactions with your neighbor? And so what we see in this text is that kingdom citizens have their entire value system overhauled. Outside of Christ, we've already seen our most basic motivation is love for self. We seek maximum joy and satisfaction in pursuing what we perceive is in our best interest. And and this is the lie of sin. You cannot be truly happy if you are giving yourself away. No, it's crazy. You'll be taken advantage of. You'll be used. What about your needs? Who's going to meet those? But having been raised with Christ completely reorients Our priorities. We're still seeking maximum joy and satisfaction. That doesn't change. However, the aim or source of that joy is replaced. I delight in doing the will of God because of the love that He has shown me. This frees me to gladly serve others, even being inconvenienced because of the desire to love others. We love ourselves. So my pursuit of maximum joy causes me to seek the good of others above my own when my delight is in Christ. So it's in this that I'm able to put myself in a place where my kindness very well may be taken advantage of. I I can give myself in seeking others' interest whether they acknowledge me or show me any kindness in return. It's because Christian love and care for others isn't based on what we get back from someone else. It's motivated by a higher joy and a more significant reward than the praise of man. It's motivated by my delight in serving the Lord through my care and through my concern for my neighbor. So even if my kindness and care isn't returned to me now, I rejoice because I'm living For what is in my best interest. I'm not living for temporary rewards. I'm living for the reward reserved for those who belong in the kingdom of God that will be fully experienced in the age that is yet to come. How would your life look different if your interactions with others was motivated by love for them? How much more patience, parents, would we have for our kids when they're kicking the blocks all the way to the toy bucket? Would you set down your phone and spend quality time with your spouse or with a dear friend instead of enjoying them through this? Would you help a friend or classmate who's struggling in a class that you're really good at? Would you take time to meet with someone who's going through a difficult time, going through difficulty, even if it means setting aside things that you had planned to do? Would you let go of grudges and freely offer forgiveness when wrong? Love for God reorients our priorities. No longer am I driven by my selfish desires to look out for me and my best interest. Counting others and their needs as more significant than myself, I gladly give my time, my talents, my energy to seek what promotes the good of those who are around me. So then, How is it that all of the law and the prophets depend on these two principles? Because obedience to God is not possible apart from love for him and love for neighbor. If we want to live a life that brings glory to God, and that is what you were made for, it starts with a heart. That's the point that Jesus is making in verse 40. When I love God with all that I am, I'm not worried about how light or heavy a law is. I obey it because I love God, and I want to serve Him with all that I am. This is obedience that honors God. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for time in Your Word, and we thank You for Your Word that we may know You, that You are infinitely worthy of worship. I pray, O oh God, that we would give You that which You've made us to give You, that our hearts' desires would be set on the praise of You, that our hearts' desires would be set on... Uh, delighting in you, being satisfied in you, and going out and honoring you out of the delight that we have in you. Father, I know in my own heart that's not often enough a motivating factor. Change me, change us. That when people look on this body, what they would see are people who are wholeheartedly devoted to you, who can't fathom doing anything other than living for you and your glory. Because of how great and mighty and majestic you are and how good your gospel is. We pray all of this in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.